Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Eric Alterman points out in his latest book that although the state of Israel's land area ranks 149th in the list of 195 nations, fights about its fate and the Zionist movement that gave birth to it have been a staple of both Jewish and American popular culture. He traces that debate back to its 19th century origins and explains why it matters. The book, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel, is published by Basic Books and brings Eric Alterman, an award-winning journalist, media critic for The Nation magazine, and distinguished professor of English and journalism at the City University of New York, to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. You open your book with this line, the space that Israel occupies in U.S. political debates is by any measure extraordinary. Don't you think so? Well, that I guess that's what we're going to be discussing, right? Yeah. Didn't uh, President Truman agree in 1948 to support the creation of the state of Israel after intensive lobbying from American Jews? Because uh, I guess it was a response to the Holocaust. It's a very complicated story. He did agree to do it with the, on the um, support of his political advisors and against the advice of his foreign policy advisors. He was not a Zionist. He was a politician. But in the case of Truman, I would say that uh, one thing that really drove him was the plight of the Holocaust refugees who were still in concentration camps in Europe in conditions that were not as bad as they were under Hitler, but were horrific. We're talking and about a quarter, no of a, million or, a quarter of a million or so refugees. Yeah. And there was no place for them to go. The United States wasn't going to let them in. and No other country would let them in. So the only place they could go was Palestine. And the United States was always fighting with Britain to try and get to Britain to let them in, and Britain wouldn't let them in. So that's actually the reason why there had to be a state of Israel in 1948, because there was no other way to save those people from the condition that they were in. And, um, you know, the, the idea of a state of Israel, a Jewish state, was a, came rather late in the game. Jews wanted to have autonomy in Palestine, and they wanted to run their own show, but they didn't necessarily think they needed a state. But they found out that because they didn't want to go to war and everything that would like to result, um, the, the result was actually a lot better than they expected. They, they were quite afraid at the time that they might be wiped out. But there was, not, there was no, no other way to save those refugees other than to have the state of Israel. And I think that is what ultimately led to Truman's division. Didn't supporting Jewish immigration to Israel threaten American relations with the Arab nations? Yes, that's why the State Department and the Defense Department and the, uh, what became the CIA were all dead set against it. Um, no. And so, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, but the thing was, is that, and historians don't really spend much time on this. They had no alternative. Britain could not maintain its presence in Palestine any longer. It was actually, this is um, considered to be one of the most effective uses of terrorism ever. The Jewish terrorists, uh, the Yagun and the Stern Gang, were making life impossible for the British there. And it was costing them a fortune. And they had to leave. And without the British there, there was no way. The Americans certainly were not going to send their troops there. So there was, there was no alternative. That was actually one of the main arguments that Clark Clifford made in this famous meeting 
against Secretary of State George Mitchell as to why the United States should recognize the state of Israel, because the government, the nascent government of Israel, the Jews who were there, were the only people who could keep order in the place. Well, there already had been large migrations of very different groups of Russian Jews fleeing to Palestine to escape the anti-Semitic pogroms and other horrors of Tsarist Russia. So they kind of created the culture before all of this even happened. Well, there had always been Jews in Palestine. Most of them, for a long time, were these extremely religious Jews who were waiting for the Messiah to come in Jerusalem and felt they needed to be there when it happened. The modern-day Zionist movement began in 1896 or 1897, and uh, there were th what we call three aliyot, three different um, mass immigrations to Israel, to Palestine. But at the time of the UN mandate ending and, and uh, voting to create the state of Israel, they were still only about 30, 40% tops of the population of the country. I'm so, uh, but a lot of, of them went, Jews went to the area at the end of the 19th century. Others came to the United States. But uh, far more came to the United we, States. We, Two million uh, enacted, came to the United States. But we enacted uh, immigration laws that prevented them from coming after a certain point, didn't we? 1924, the Immigration of Act of 1924 basically shut down all immigration of Jews to the United States. And and uh, and nobody nobody really argued for that to be opened up, not even during the Holocaust. Now, didn't everything change a lot following the 1967 Six-Day War when support for Israel became an important component of American Jewish identity? But it led yes. to a sense of dual loyalty in many, didn't it? Yeah, what, what a lot of people don't realize is that after the, the Jew, American Jews were enormously active in supporting the creation of the state of Israel. I think it was the largest lobbyist lobbying campaign in all of history. But after that, they kind of went back to their lives and didn't really pay much attention to Israel. They, 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 kids might have collected money to plant trees and um, maybe on Israeli Independence Day, a temple would have a celebration. But it wasn't in, considered central to their lives. And, Although um, an American it, congregation sold its sy synagogue building after the, the 1967 war and sent them right, to Israel. Right, what I'm saying is everything changed so, fundamentally after the 1967 war. And, uh, and Israel, support for Israel, together with remembrance of the Holocaust, became the very center of American Jewish identity. In fact, it, it became, in many cases, all of American Jewish identity. You point out that in the early 20th century, uh, American Jews loved the idea of a Zionist state for persecuted Jews, but not for themselves. And you, you called it Zionism for thee, but not for me. Right. Well, they were uh, American Zionism for a long time was a Christian movement. Uh, in some ways, it, it, it is again. Um, and uh, and these. The American Jews who were here. Initially, they were German Jews, and they were Reformed Jews, and they didn't believe in Jewish peoplehood. And they just thought Jews were a religion, just like Christianity was, and it would, be, it would appear unpatriotic for them to support 
the creation of a Jewish state because it would call their own citizenship and commitment to America into question. Uh, this changed in 1920 when Louis Brandeis became head of the uh, Zionist Organization of America, and he came and he, and he came up with this notion of saying that American Jews had no use for Zionism, but the other Jews did, who were persecuted, who didn't live in nice places like America did, like America was. And so that's what I mean by Zionism for me and not for me. American Zionism came to support um, the move to Israel for persecuted Jews elsewhere. And that's actually how it's remained. I mean, only the, the, the Zionists expected American Jews to emigrate en masse to Israel after the state was founded. Only about 5% of American Jews ever did. What about Christian fundamentalists? who believed in Armageddon. How did they react to all of this? Well, again, the Christian fundamentalists, what I, what they're actually, there's a, there's a specific theology called pre-millennial, pre, pre, pre and they, they, I'll think of it momentarily, and they believe that Jews, the return of Jews to Zion is a key moment in the book of revelations that will lead to the return of Jesus and Armageddon. And then the they will coming. be, they will be raptured up to heaven and the Jews will go to hell, but that's not their problem. Um, and this has become pre-millennial pre, pre dispensations is the name of it. And, and, and this, this was began uh, in the 1800s and a bunch of people believed in it and argued on behalf of Zionism for that reason. But in, Beginning in, say, the 1970s and 1980s, it became enormously popular in the United States today. And evangelical Christian leaders support this idea. And even though they are themselves anti-Semitic, um, they support the state of Israel because they believe it's going to hasten the return of Christ and the revelation. And Israel and conservative Israeli support, conservative supporters of Israel in the United States are totally down with this because they don't care what they think about Jews. They just care that they support the state of Israel. So you've got this weird situation where anti-Semites are the strongest supporters of Israel in the United States. There are a number of outspoken support groups like IPAC and Christians United for Israel. Yeah, uh, Christians United for Israel is the largest pro-Israel organization in the world. And they're... Um, the head of it, John Hagee, really? has praised Hitler uh, as a hunter for God and mm -hmm. blamed the Jews for their turning away from the Bible as the reason that God sent Hitler to do his dirty work. And yet that's cool with a lot of conservative Jews uh, and supporters of Israel. I, I find it rather shocking, but there it is. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Eric Alterman, whose latest book is We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So Jewish organizations have joined forces with conservative Christians and neoconservative pundits and politicians to define Israel's image in the U.S. media and the popular culture in Congress and college campuses. But hasn't much of that consensus on Israel and Palestine been fracturing recently? 
Absolutely. Um, for the longest time, uh, anyone who, who criticized Israel beyond the very narrow bounds of what these organizations felt was kosher would be uh, slandered as an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. Uh, that's changed. It still happens. Um, it happens all the time, actually. But there's a, been an enormous growth, both among Jews and certainly among uh, non-Jews who support the Palestinian people or just think that Israel behaves badly sometimes, that has, um, that has opened up the dialogue on this. I wouldn't say it's, a, it's opened it up completely. For instance, my book has not been reviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, etc. I think it might have something to do with this discourse, but it's still, it, it's still a lot different than it was just a few years ago. You say in regard to Donald Trump and Israel's new prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, that Israel is a red state and U.S. Jewry is blue. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about Trump and Netanyahu when I said it. I'm talking about the two different groups of Jews. That's one reason the book is called We Are Not One, because Israeli Jews and American Jews have very different views of the world. Israeli Jews are right-wingers in every respect. Mm -hmm. They're the only... Uh, Israel is the only country, putatively democratic country in the world, that preferred Trump to both Obama and Biden. And each group of people, the younger people, are moving in the opposite direction. So Israel has become a quite politically conservative country, and its young people are more conservative than its older people, whereas in the United States, American Jews are quite left-wing, but they're the young American Jews are much more to the left and less supportive of Israel than older American Jews. So the groups are, are at opposite ends of the spectrum and growing even further in that direction. So we're seeing a flip-flop here because Israel originally uh, flirted with a kind of socialism, didn't it? Ben-Gurion's labor Zionism. And it's only recently become really conservative. Right now, Netanyahu is historically the most politically conservative leader the country's ever had? Well, it's his sixth term as prime minister, so he's got the most conservative government Israel's ever had, but he's led all different mm -hmm. kinds of governments. He, he, he doesn't really care that much about politics. He cares about power, and he'll, he'll make a government with whoever he has to in order to both keep his job and stay out of jail because he's quite corrupt. He's quite similar to Trump in this regard. They both don't really believe very much, except in their own, uh, what they do to deem to be their own best interest. But it's true that when Israel was founded, it was a socialist nation. It was supported by the Soviet Union and the left. The nation and the New Republic uh, loved Israel. Uh, National Review did not. Um, conservatives were worried that it was going to be a Soviet base in the Middle East. This is a really important topic right now, uh, and and with the, all of the violence that's going on in Israel, uh, it's something of, uh, that should be of major concern. So I was asking how relevant Donald Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem was. Right. Well, that was done in part because it was uh, a plank for the Christian conservatives, but also uh, there was one funder named Sheldon Adelson, who was the largest, single largest funder of the Republican Party. And all he cared about was Israel. And according to Maggie Haberman's book, 
he gave he, he offered a direct bribe to Trump of 20 million dollars to his campaign if Trump would agree to move to the embassy to Israel. The, uh, there had been a law that the embassy should be moved to Israel that was passed under Clinton's presidency, but every single president had the right to postpone that law for six months, postpone the move, and every president did at every six at six month intervals until Trump. And and uh, and Adelson uh, invested all this money, and Trump took the money, and but he also did it on behalf of his Christian conservative constituency. So he Trump didn't care. Just like the Israelis don't care what liberal American Jews think, they care what their specific um, constituencies think. And Trump's constituency was about 25 to 30 percent of American Jews, and all conservative Christians, and that was plenty. He, uh, Trump, has never received a majority of the Jewish vote nationally or in New York, although uh, he uh, received 37 percent of the New York. New York's Jewish vote in 2020. Does that suggest some kind of a change? Because on the other hand, we're seeing from Pew Research that younger American Jews, particularly those outside Orthodox Judaism, are now distancing themselves from... The, the 37% figure... Go ahead. If, if, if you're talking about New York Jews, that's due to the fact that New York has so many Orthodox Jews. Only 10% of American Jews are Orthodox, but an awful lot of them are located in New York, and they are conservative. But overall, uh, roughly 7 and 10%, 7 out of 10 American Jews vote Democratic. And that's not changing. That's, that's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. So um, as Orthodox Jews grow in number and in percentage so that's, of American Jews... So has that been historically true? Yes. Yeah, it's always been about seven out of ten. It it, it varies. Clinton Clinton got about eighty percent. Um, Obama dipped a little in the second term, but basically it's seven out of ten. Well, on the other hand, Hasidic groups, uh, any number of them, have opposed the creation of Israel. Yeah, they are very small in number, and they don't matter at all vote wise. Mm -hmm. They don't vote. In, well, they vote they, in, they, uh, they, they, they in local elections. Want their, they, they want their schools funded and and let them teach whatever they want. And they, they're all really about local issues in their vote. They don't they don't vote on Israel. They're the anti-Zionist Hussies. They're they're interesting because uh, uh, groups like APAC and the ADL and the American Jewish Committee they all say if you don't support Israel, you're not a good Jew. And these are obviously good Jews. They're Hasids. And they don't, they hate no. Israel, but, uh, but they're not politically significant. How have uh, American politicians uh, felt about Israel? Hubert Humphrey, George McGovern, Richard Nixon. Um, uh, have they all wooed the Jews? And, yeah, and, and has the, Israel been part of that? Yeah, the last American president who took on Israel in public was Dwight Eisenhower. Since then, virtually every American president, while they have been extremely frustrated with actions taken by Israel, they have been very reluctant to try to get Israel to do anything Israel didn't want to do. And basically, they have basked uh, in supporting Israel. There's a lot of talk these days that the Democratic Party is turning 
less sympathetic to Israel. It's true on the margins, it's true on the what constitutes the far left of the Democratic Party, the, the squad. But it's not true of the Democratic Party per se. So when you had a vote, the United States uh, signed a memo of understanding with Israel in under Barack Obama that entitles Israel to $38 billion of U.S. aid over a period of 10 years. So $3.8 billion a year. That's the law. So during the war of 2021, when Israel uh, fought with Hamas in Gaza, Israel used up about a billion dollars worth of Iron Dome missiles. Iron Dome missiles are the missiles that shoot down other missiles. Um, and so Congress decided it should replace those missiles free of charge to Israel, give them an extra billion dollars for that. The vote on that in Congress was 529 to 8 with one abstention. The abstention was AOC. So eight Democratic congressmen voted against it and 429 voted for it and 100 senators voted for it. So if you're looking for a big change in the Democratic Party, it's a very long way off, if ever. You say that Obama, Clinton, and Carter are all very similar and that they all wanted to do the right thing as long as the price was something they wanted to pay. So why have many Israelis and American Jewish organizations disliked Obama? Didn't he give them almost everything they wanted? Yeah. Um, they don't like him because, number one, he has the outlook of a liberal Zionist Jew. Uh, he, he became very good friends with a rabbi named uh, Arnold Jacob Wolf. Was it what he said about the settlements or the nuclear deal with Iran? Well, the nuclear deal of Iran was the big was the big point of contention between Obama and Netanyahu. And the American Jews sided with Netanyahu. The, the American Jewish organizations sided with Netanyahu. American Jews did not. American Jews supported Obama. Um, and, in, and this brings up the point that these... American Jewish organizations like APAC are in opposition to the political views of American Jews and do not represent them if they ever did. Um, and yet they, are, they remain just as powerful and influential as ever for a lot of complicated reasons. There's, a, there's fights going on among American Jews through their organizations now. And there's, for instance, the much more liberal J Street organization, which has set itself up against APAC, but APAC still rules the day in Congress. Well, when he testified before Congress, didn't Mort Klein of the politically conservative Zionist Organization of America accuse the press of taking Trump's comments on Charlottesville, where neo-Nazis marched in 2017 and chanted, the Jews will not replace us? He, he said that the press was taking that completely out of context. How do you Mort take that out of context? Morton Klein is very extremist fellow. The ZOA now is at the very, very far right of American Jewish organizations. I referred to him as racist in, recently in The Nation, and he got very upset and started writing me and telling me how much he had always worked with blacks and grew up with blacks and liked blacks and so forth. But um, he, there's there's been a lot of moves to try and kick him out of the president's conference of Jewish organizations because of his extreme well, has, go ahead. rhetoric. No, I'm just saying he's he's not a good example because he, he even he he's considered extreme even by the other conservative Jewish leaders. 
his organization just gave an award to Trump after Trump made a whole bunch of anti-Semitic comments uh, in recent uh, months. If you'd like to uh, read his book, you can get a free copy of We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. If you sign up to become a member of WVAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, to do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. We'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Locate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Eric Alterman, whose latest book, uh, actually this is his 12th book, uh, his latest one is We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel, published by Basic Books. Mr. Alterman is a CUNY Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College and a contributing writer to The Nation and American Prospect. And is this book a bit of a departure for you? I mean, it is if you look at my other books, but it's something I've been working on for really for decades. It was, I began research on it, I'm not kidding, 40 years ago when I did my honors thesis in college. And then I spent a lot more time on it when I did my dissertation in graduate school, although I ended up doing a different topic, the one that became my book, When Presidents Lie. And I've been writing about this issue quite a lot in the nation and other publications, the American Prospect as well. Um, and, and a lot of this book, because it's about the discourse, it's not a book about the history of American-Israel relations. It's a book about the argument itself, which has taken place in the media. And of course, that's why most people know me is for my media analysis. And the book is filled with that. So I feel like this book pulls together. Like I got my, I got my uh, doctorate in the history of American foreign policy and I, spend a lot of time on the media and I write a lot about Jews and I feel like this is really what I know. So it might look like a departure, but I actually feel like it's at the center of whatever expertise I might have. The only thing that's not in here is there's nothing about Bruce Springsteen, except that one of the yeah, chapters is named after one of the songs. Culture. I know I get uh, things on my Facebook page all the time from you. Yeah. Well, one of the first chapter is called, uh, um, Working on a Dream, which is not a great Bruce Springsteen mm -hmm. song, to tell you the truth, but it worked as the name of a chapter. Now, I mentioned before the break uh, 
Mort Klein. Um, and he he uh, has I, I want to talk just a bit more about the split in American Jewry uh, over Israel and uh, anti-Semitism. He called Trump the best friend Israel ever had in the White House, um, although that was before the Mar-a-Lago dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. Uh, hasn't it been reported that Trump keeps Hitler's speeches by his bed? His ex-wife said that um, uh-huh. during their divorce proceedings. So it's been reported. I, I put it in my book two years ago and uh, and in this book, so people know it. But, you know, Trump is crazy. Trump is Trump is insane. He, he does all kinds of things that that people have to just, you know, shake their heads at and go on with their day. Trump and Netanyahu are incredibly similar with the exception that Netanyahu is not crazy. He's corrupt. He's racist. He's power mad. He's he'll do anything. He's amoral, just like Trump is. But he's 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 sane. He, 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 you can talk to him reasonably, whereas Trump is a lunatic. And and our politics have somehow adjusted to the fact that this lunatic was president and might be president again. But um, what can you say? It's, it's very hard to take the things Donald Trump says seriously. You write about how neoconservatives admonished American Jews when they complained about Israel's alliance with Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson. Uh, you say the Christian Zionist devotion to greater Israel earned them a pass from the neocons for their occasional outbursts of anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, we talked about this a little bit earlier. The the Christian, mm. the neoconservatives, and the and most American Jewish organizations. It took them a little while to come around to this. Decided that they didn't really care what these Christians thought about Jews or what they thought about theology. They only cared about what they thought about Israel. So they gave them a pass on their anti-Semitic comments and their anti-Semitic theology, so long as they continue to support Israel. And they do support Israel in a big way, in a way that most American Jews do not. The only Jews who support Israel the way the Christian conservatives do are the ultra-Orthodox. So there's an alliance there, and they and those people mirror the same politics as Israel does, whereas American Jews have the opposite politics. So it's a, it's a messed up situation from that perspective. You argue that at least since the early 1970s, Debate over Israeli policies and practices in regard to Palestine have been short-circuited by what you call the sacralization of the Holocaust and the quickness to label any criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. But right, you well, also say it's never the country American Jews imagined it, it was. Yeah, well, those are two different topics. Um, okay. On the one Take hand, one yes— on, on the one hand, yes, Israel created a mythical, Israel and its supporters in the United States created a mythical notion of what Israel was and what its relationship to uh, the Palestinians had been. And on the other hand, there has been a, an enormous increase since the Six Day War of attention paid to the Holocaust by American Jews. Um, and part of that is the idea that. Uh, they thought that Israel might be destroyed in 1967. There was a lot of fear before the war began um, that there was going to be a second Holocaust. And, uh, and they felt like God had intervened to save Israel as, he, as God hadn't done during the Holocaust. And that, 
American Jews had been sort of afraid to try and do anything to help uh, Jews during the Holocaust, afraid or incapable, lacking in power. So yeah, well, the whole there was, there was discourse. There was a wonderful documentary about it. And uh, the problem was that there was a lot of anti-Semitism or fear of anti-Semitism within the Roosevelt administration. Well, there was both. There was fear of anti Today is actually Franklin Roosevelt's birthday. He was born, I think, in 1889. Um, on the one hand, there was fear of anti-Semitism both in the Roosevelt administration and among, among American Jews, which was why American Jews did not agitate for to get the Roosevelt administration to allow more Jewish refugees to enter the country and therefore be saved from Hitler. On the other hand, there was also a lot of anti-Semitism inside the Roosevelt administration, especially in the State Department. So there was a man there by the name of Breckenridge Long, who was head of refugee policy, and he would not let virtually any Jews into the country, even the tiny amount that Congress had said ought to be left in. He, the, the quotas for Jews were never filled during World War II because of because A, Breckenridge Long, who I think was a schoolmate of Roosevelt, um, didn't want to let them in, and Roosevelt didn't want to force it. Roosevelt didn't really care. Didn't Abe Foxman, the former head of the Anti-Defamation League, say recently, I never thought I could would reach that point where I would say that my support of Israel is conditional. Is he um, alone in that, or is that a growing sentiment among people um, on the left? Well, Abe Foxman is very much on the right, so that's why it's significant okay. that he, it's that's why it's significant that he said that. Um, uh -huh. But on the left, for instance, uh, this new government of Israel. It's so extreme and so distasteful to, to so many American Jews in everything about it. It's anti-LGBT, it's support, it's uh, people by people, by uh, people who have been uh, supporters of Jewish terrorism, it's a theocratic nature. Everything about it is distasteful to American Jews, except for, again, this very small cohort of right-wing American Jews. And, uh, and we're not, it's not clear yet how American Jewish organizations are going to handle this. For instance, uh, 200 reform rabbis said that they would not invite the, any of the leaders of these parties to their synagogues. And mm. a bunch of liberal congressmen have said they will not meet with any of these ministers when they go to Israel. So there is a reaction, but we don't know how large it's going to be. The, the conservative American Jewish organizations have always supported everything Israel's ever done. They're in a real pickle. And they haven't figured out how to deal with it yet. My guest on today's Let It Located Large is Eric Alterman. His latest book, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Can we talk a bit about BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanction? Sure. I think it's a disaster. Um, the, the movement is clearly a failure uh, in almost any way you judge it. If you, if you say, well, it's nice that 
for the Palestinians that somebody's remembering them and talking about them and demonstrating on behalf of them and showing them that they are a concern to people outside of their lives and their world, then okay, that's nice. But from a political standpoint, it's a complete failure and for good reason. It has no credible theory of how it might work. So it's been around now since about 2004. During that time, it's received the support of no governments, in the United States, no union, no local governments, no universities, no corporations, zero on all accounts. It's gotten a few uh, academic organizations and a few left-wing magazines and, or, and, and other left-wing organizations that have no power and very little influence. Now, it's it, in part, the reason is Oh, and, and in a recent poll of Americans, it had the support of 4% of Americans, 2% felt strongly about it. That's after almost 20 years. Nothing at all like the Zionist movement had in its day when it was trying to build a country. Now, I don't support it at all. And I don't support it for two reasons. One is I care too much about freedom of uh, discourse, freedom of expression in academia. And I think it's, it's uh, contrary to that. But even so, even if you didn't care about that, if you, if you really just cared about how to help the Palestinians because you think they're being treated badly by Israel and by the rest of the world, you'd say, well, how is this organization gonna achieve its goal of, 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 a, um, of creating a free Palestine from the river to the sea? How are they gonna achieve their goal of a one state Palestine or even get Palestine a state next door to Israel, which is something that the movement doesn't say it necessarily supports. And the answer is they have absolutely no way of doing that. They're never gonna convince Israel to change and they're never gonna convince the United States government to change. There's just no possibility of that ever happening. It's nothing like the movement that succeeded in South Africa. So all it really is is people adopting an attitude and uh, sort of a political fashion statement. Now, again, it's better than terrorism. Uh, it's it's uh, it's nonviolent, and uh, it gives people a sense of purpose and the Palestinians a sense that they're they're not forgotten entirely. But it has no hope of actually helping the Palestinians achieve any of their political goals. Um, now, there's good reason. There's lots of reasons why the Palestinians have never achieved their goals. They're very bad at politics. Um, and to be fair to them, they've been bad at seeing the future, which of course nobody can do. But they also have competing constituencies that are impossible to satisfy at once. There's the people, many, many hundreds of thousands of people still living in refugee camps. Their grandparents, mm -hmm were sent to refugee camps, their grandchildren are in refugee camps, their, those grandchildren will be in refugee camps. It's the worst conditions of life imaginable. Then there's those Palestinians living under occupation in the West Bank, very difficult life. Then there's those Palestinians living in Israel proper who live under all kinds of discrimination. Then there's Palestinians working outside of Palestine uh, in like the Gulf states and so forth and sending money home. Then there's some Palestinians living very nicely elsewhere in the world, 
uh, in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and so on. And, and then there's the whole Arab world, which, which claims Jerusalem to be its, you know, the heart of Islam. And, and they won't allow the Palestinians to compromise on any issues that, in which they don't get control all of, over all of the holy sites in Jerusalem, as far as Islam is concerned. Now, all of these people have competing ideas when it comes to what compromises are possible. And they can't be solved. The so the problem, only thing they can agree on is to say no. Isn't part of the problem that this area is important for three major religions? Uh, Judaism, sure, yeah. Christianity, and, and Islam? Yeah, well, yeah, but you could work it out in such a way with people of goodwill that everybody had access to all of their religious shrines and uh, and had their own form of sovereignty. That's not the problem. The problem is it's a, it's a political problem that they refuse to agree, that Israel doesn't want to share power and the Palestinians don't want to agree. A big problem with the Palestinians, I have to say, it sounds harsh, is that they've lost 15 wars now and they and they make demands as if they've won them. They, 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 they're a defeated nation militarily. And, and, and Israel feels like, well, we don't have to give you any concessions we don't want to give you because you can't make us do anything. And the mm -hmm. Palestinians are unable to say, I thought they were saying this at the, at the Camp David uh, when um, the Oslo Accords, but they weren't. Uh, they, I thought they were saying, okay, we get it. We, we've, we've been unlucky historically. Um, we should have agreed to create Palestine in 1947, even though we were offered a bad deal then. Um, we've made other mistakes, like with Camp David and Jimmy Carter, but now we're ready to recognize reality and get the best deal we can and have a little state and build on that. But they're not saying that. They're saying we want it all. And Israel's saying, forget it. You know, we have everything, you have nothing. Tough luck. So um, BDS is taking that same position. It's saying we want it all. It's completely unfair. Israel is an apartheid state. It has no right to exist. It needs to, the Jews need to, you know, uh, agree to be a minority there and, and live under Palestinian rule. And that's just never ever gonna happen. They have no way of making it happen. They have no even theory of how it could happen. So it's a disaster from a political standpoint. It, it works as a way of organizing college students and some faculty and some leftist organizations like uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialist America, but it doesn't work uh, in the real world. And uh, and I and I regret that so much energy is expended on behalf of it because it just gives an excuse to right-wing governments and organizations to shut down free speech. Did you ever feel like you were walking on a, a landmine when you chose write this book because i have a feeling a lot of people are going to be upset oh i'd be amazed if, any, if anyone in the entire world agrees with everything in this book um mm -hmm. the, uh, there was a review in, in a by an organization called the jewish book council which said eric altimer is going to make a lot of people angry but for different reasons which is kind of how i live my life um as i said i, I had sensed that the debate on israel had opened up some and that it was possible to say, to make some points that were uncomfortable to people 
and would have gotten me in a lot of trouble in the past. Um, I was kind of wrong about that if I'm judging by the fact that the book is not being reviewed in the mainstream media at all. Uh, it's being ignored. I was attacked in a conservative publication called the Jewish Review of Books recently. That was a very personal attack. But you know, I'm mm -hmm. a tenured professor. Um, and, uh, and the things I'm saying, I've been saying for decades in my column in The Nation and elsewhere. And uh, the book is not, uh, is not being as, as widely received as I would have liked, but there isn't anything these people can do to me. I'm, I'm immune because I have tenure, um, uh, thank goodness. And um, you know, I have a very nice job. I'm very grateful to the City University of New York for making me a distinguished professor, which is a, a terrific gig. What about Jewish Excuse students me? at Brooklyn College? Does anybody argue with you? I would say at Brooklyn College, the argument would come from the left rather than from the right. Uh -huh. um, uh, in, in all the institutes, the nation and in the English department at Brooklyn College, I would say I'm probably the most conservative person there is. Hmm. At the nation, I was the only person who cared whether or not there was an Israel, except for maybe the editor-in-chief at the time, Katrina Vandenhovel and Victor Navasky, but they're not the editor-in-chief anymore. No, um, Victor Navasky just left us. Yes, he did. I, I went to Shiva for Victor yesterday, and I'm going again today. It's an enormous personal loss to me and to, to all of American journalism. I'm glad um, that came up. Uh, he was my mentor and my friend. And actually, I should stop talking about him because I find it hard to talk when I do. Anyway, um, the nation uh, for a long time was a lonely voice in support of the Palestinians. Now it's it's become, I'd say, more strident in that regard. And uh, and my position is was well to the right of the nation's position on Israel because I've always called myself a conservative liberal. And that's because <laughs> whereas... I'm a left liberal in terms of what I would like to see happen in the world. I'm a conservative liberal because I only support things that I can see how they might happen. Don't tell me you support C when we're at A and you don't know what B is. And I feel like I, that's how the Palestinians argue uh, and supporters of the Palestinians. They say, this is what's just and we have to support what's just. And I said, even if I agree with you about what's just, and in some cases I do, in some cases I don't, I want to know how we're going to achieve that. They have no answer for that. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Uh, okay. Eric Alderman, as he has just pointed out, writes for the nation, also American Prospect. Um, he is a CUNY Distinguished Professor of English at Brooklyn College. And the book we've been discussing is his latest, his 12th. From basic books, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. Thank you so much for being on our show. And Thank you. Bye-bye. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our 700 or so past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lettedlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you, to support WBAI, keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel by Eric Alterman. So why not make that call right now at 
212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950 or give and then the number to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20 or more. And we will say thank you if you do that with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Remember, BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take foundation grants or ads. Uh, We're 100% listener-sponsored. And your support is tax-deductible. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Dan Levitt discussing his new book, What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang Through Last Night's Dinner. We'll see you then. Thank you.